Josh, it is December and you know what's great still this time of year? Creator commerce. There's just so many ways for creators to make profits. Take, for example, digital products. For real, you can bring any idea to life with digital content and they're accessible to all fans globally. Did you know there are 60,000 creators selling digital products on the Spring platform? And everyone here listening definitely needs to get in on it too. The beauty of this type of product is there is no shipping involved. It's really easy. Fans purchase the product, hit download in their inbox, and they get it instantly. Creators can literally make profits right up until Christmas Day. Forget rush shipping or delivery cutoff dates. It's great to see the variety of content these creators are bringing to the table too. We've seen cheese making courses, Christmas tree shaped shelving guides, cable knit hat patterns, festive e-cards. There's a lot. Creators really do have the freedom to create and sell anything. Spring has put together a blog full of inspiration and free templates to get started. No design wizards required. Visit spring slash blog, that's S-P-R-I dot N-G slash blog to learn more and sign up. This week on Creator Upload, Order viral food off the TikTok menu. YouTubers are turning into robots and what's in store for the future. Welcome to Creator Upload, your creator economy podcast. I'm Lauren Schnipper. And I'm Joshua Cohen. Lauren. Yes. I know you're not very active on Twitter, but have you seen ex-Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's latest tweets? Mm-mm. Get out your popcorn, everybody. So Mark Andreessen of A16Z, who's basically invested in everything ever, blocked Jack Dorsey on Twitter, probably because Jack recently tweeted, you don't own, quote, Web3, unquote. The VCs and their LPs do. It will never escape their incentives. It's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label. Know what you're getting into. And people were kind of surprised by this because Jack has been a big proponent of at least Bitcoin. Maybe he's just a Bitcoin maximalist and doesn't believe in these other kind of protocols and different layers and different coins and different ecosystems in crypto. But this was interesting, caused a lot of debate about who owns. Wait, who tweeted that? Jack tweeted that? Jack tweeted that. But he, but he said the VCs on it, but Andreessen is a VC. Exactly. Because the idea of Web3 and crypto is that it's supposed to be this huge decentralized oh, ecosystem. Oh, that, that was a bad thing. Okay, got it. <laughs> because it's saying it's not decentralized. Okay, I'm with you. Sorry. I was like, isn't he giving him props? Oh, Right, it. and A16Z yeah, yeah, yeah. has these billion dollar funds that they've invested a ton of dough into basically Correct. every crypto protocol you can think of. Correct. Yeah, no, it's crazy. So Mark Andreessen blocks Jack and then Jack just goes on a tear. Does he even respond or he just blocks him? He just blocks him. And then Jack just goes on a tear talking about how Andreessen's mission statement has always felt so dark. If you go to A16's Twitter profile, it says, we invest in software eating the world. I'd have to agree with Jack there a little bit. And then he also says, uh, Jack also did a little bit of copy pasta from the A16Z website, quote, we aim to connect entrepreneurs, investors, executives, engineers, academics, industry experts, and others in the technology ecosystem through open and decentralized blocking of Twitter accounts. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mark Andreessen and other people at A16Z are kind of infamous for blocking a bunch of people on Twitter with even the remotest slight appears before them. They've also blocked a bunch of people on Clubhouse. So if like, and A16Z is a huge investor in Clubhouse. So if you are blocked by Mark Andreessen, for instance, you can't go into a room where he's a speaker. Oh my God, that was a really? huge deal early on, yeah. So basically people were getting into these Twitter beefs saying bad things about A16Z or A16Z's investments. And they are just very quick to use the block button. So interesting. 
I don't know much about Mark Andreessen. I read A Hard Thing About Hard Things by uh, Ben Horowitz, who was the co-founder of A16. It's basically just all about startups and like if they essentially the thesis being like, if it was easy, everybody would do it. I really appreciated a lot of what he wrote about, which was just like telling it like it is and his theories on like hiring practices. Basically, he validated a lot of the experiences I had at Facebook about the hierarchy of the hiring, which basically is such that, you know, you know, the engineers rule the world there and like all this. Sort of, it's just very interesting. It's, but he's he comes off the page as an asshole. And my, I, what I've heard is he is, in fact, an asshole. So it reads very accurately. So I'm not surprised that... Uh, Andreessen as well. Of course, I'm, I'm very familiar with their work, but I don't know much about his personality. So this all, this all kind of tracks. Yeah. And I just think the big critique here is they always talk about like an open and inclusive internet, though at the smallest infringement on right, something that yeah. they've said, yeah. they are very quick to extricate you from their but Twitter experience. But at the same time, I'm like, part of me is just like, they're just choosing to not engage and like stay focused on their work. And they, but, but also you could argue, but they're not going to engage in any sort of, they won't hear any criticism or anything like that, which is obviously just like kind of ridiculous, but I don't know if their time is best spent going back and forth with like anybody, Jack Dorsey included on Twitter. Like, I just feel like those Twitter feuds are like a little bit ridiculous and really just fodder for you. I like um, you coming at the angle of let's save the uh, venture capitalist mental health. I appreciate that. It's not, <laughs> I'm just like, let's say he went back and forth with Jack Dorsey. Like, what's that doing for anybody that we would think he's more of a douche? Like, I'm just saying. I don't know. It depends on what type of interactions they have with one another. It could lead to something like really fruitful and some really cool intellectual conversations. But alas, here we are. In short, Jack's having fun not being the CEO of Twitter anymore. Definitely. I, I heard he's still CEO of another company, so maybe he should go work on that. Okay, we have like so much stuff to talk about. This is our last show of the year, everybody. I know. Next year, we will be doing this in 2022. It'll be our third calendar year doing this. Two years. Feels two only years. like a decade. Feels only like 17 years. <laughs> Literally, we thought about doing this in like middle... 2019. Well, everybody knows the famous, it's a famous story, really, Josh, where I called you up and I said, you know what, I want to do a podcast about the creator economy in early 2019. And you said, you know what, Lauren, so do I, I've been thinking about starting one. And I thought to myself, screw you for stealing my idea. And I believe you thought the same thing, even though I said it first, so it makes no sense that you said it. Cut to 60 months later, neither of us did anything. You called me and said, shall we do this together? And I said, you know what, Josh, we shall. And then we launched in a really, just the most amazing time to launch any new business venture partnership, which was February 2020, which is just who knew what the world was going to be. So here we are today, almost two years later at the end of 2021. Is that where we are right now? Very excited uh, to continue on this journey together. Yeah, it's been... So far. Yes. <laughs> You're a real piece of work. All right, let's get on to some big stories. TikTok is launching a food delivery service that will pay creators off of viral dishes. Okay, so everybody remembers this year. I've still yet to make it, but it looks delicious. I just watched a video of it again when I was researching the story, which is the tomato feta pasta situation. Even at one point, the New York Times Cooking, which is a separate total app from New York Times, to which I subscribe, they did their own like gourmet version of the TikTok, you know, feta tomato pasta. It's a thing. So now they're, you know, sort of getting on the bandwagon of like a Mr. Beats burgers and they're going to be 
I don't know, bringing these dishes to the masses. They're going to be using kitchens in um, from like Buca de Beppa to Bertucci's. Huge Buca de Beppa fan over here. Just going to say it for the record. So a lot of these kitchens, because I've done a little research into this sort of sector, because there's a lot of food stuff coming in the creator world where there's a lot of these kitchens out there that have, you know, bandwidth. They essentially just, there's off peak hours, there's this and that. So they like, there's companies, startups cropping up out there that are basically taking advantage of that extra bandwidth and basically paying the kitchens. And there's different deals that are structured. Um, to make these kind of, I don't know, these dishes. I don't really understand how this is all going to work, but I find it fascinating. And it's different from ghost kitchens, right? So there are ghost kitchens where just these pop-up kitchens that you can go and use and there are the licensed and insured and whatever other, have whatever other protocols in place that you need in order to cook food that other people can consume. There's those ghost kitchens that some people are using, but then there's also basically renting out kitchen space or time at pre-existing restaurants yeah. that just want yeah. to be part of this, that wanna, those restaurants want to earn some extra dough from being basically a point of sale for whatever product you're doing. So they're like a distributor. You have Mr. Beast Burger. Mr. Beast Burger partners now with thousands of different restaurants around the world. Those restaurants yeah. are cooking their normal food for their normal clientele. And then on these different food ordering apps, you can see Mr. Beast Burger and it's coming from maybe the same restaurant you ate at the night before. You wouldn't necessarily know it. They delivered to you with Mr. Beast packaging and hopefully you enjoy your meal. Yeah, there's different models as to the way they do it. I was talking to a startup earlier this year. Their model was such that the kitchens actually, they would buy the food and then they would profit. Like they would buy the recipe and buy the food and then they would profit. They would sell the Mr. Beast Burger, for example. Not that, but let's pretend it is. And they would just take all the profit. I think it's really interesting my issue was I don't, and I guess I'm being proven wrong because Mr. Beast has been going on for a while now, but I understand how this can work from like a short-term perspective, but I have, I have friends that are chefs. I, I know the very complicated, um, you know, just how complicated having a restaurant is and quality control. So I just have a hard time believing that you have like you can do this from like a long-term basis. Like I just feel like at a certain point you just have, especially when there's all these like different sort of franchises out there doing that. You have so little control of it. Like, I just don't believe that the, you know, Mr. Beast Burger is going to taste the same everywhere. It's just, the quality is just so hard to control, but I totally buy this for like short-term drops. So like get your feta pasta for the next two weeks at Bertucci's. I mean, it sounds great. So with the Mr. Beast angle, he's really one of the only people in the creator ecosystem that could actually make this work. I think by leveraging what he's built so far off of these distributed kitchens all around the world into starting actual physical retail locations where people come into an actual physical Mr. Beast Burger store. I feel like he could start that and this could become a big brand in a major way. But outside of him, I really like this idea of viral food in a box for creators. Yeah, And this is appearing in a long line of different X in a box for creator concepts. I don't know if you remember when like the subscription crafting boxes were a big deal oh, a few sure. years ago. And then there were all these other startups that popped up that was basically like, hey, creator, come to us and we'll give you your monthly subscription crafting in a box. Well, there's so many subscription boxes that were happening. Vsauce was doing them, Chad and were doing them like so many people were doing them so many yeah so then i love this concept and agree with you for short-term viral products this could be a real win it's done by virtual dining concepts which is the same company behind mr beast burger larry's loaded mac and cheese barstool bites these people obviously know what they're doing so first off is the TikTok kitchen, which will launch with a menu that includes baked feta pasta, pasta, chips, a smash burger, and corn ribs. All these recipes and many more went viral on TikTok in 2021. 
I think first comes this TikTok viral, right? Like from the company at large. And then I think it's going to probably evolve into like, yo, if you're a creator that has hit a certain threshold on the platform, or if there's some type of meal or food that has hit a certain threshold on the platform, we'll just throw this into the menu. Who makes money off of it? Is it just TikTok? Like, how are they going to do that? I'm guessing it's TikTok. But if TikTok wants to have good PR and do well by its creators, There's been so much controversy in the news from dealing with attribution of TikTok dances, for instance, where I think they're going to have to go back and find the first people that made this and then the first people that popularized this and give them some type of credit or compensation for whatever dough they're making off it. I agree. Okay, moving on. We have so many things to get to, including like our sort of thoughts, predictions about the year behind, the year ahead. Let's talk about, so YouTube, I'm going to say this right, YouTuber Quebelkop, is that right? That's as good as we're going to get right now. He's got 15 million subs. He is going to sort of sunset his channel and he's starting, he's going to be a VTuber. He's got this VTuber venture called Blue. Let's just just back it up a little bit. The VTuber sort of phenomenon, it's basically, it's virtual YouTubers, right? And sometimes they're backed by an actual human. Sometimes they're not. Um, The most famous one I think in this country you would say is like Little Michaela. And so they are like huge in Asia. I personally like, so it's huge anime. A lot of them are anime inspired in Asia. And so, um, you know, the way they're kept up is through a lot of times motion capture technology, AI voice software. I mean, this is like avatars. This is huge, huge in Asia. Honestly, I would have thought at this point I was going to place more bets on YouTubers in this country. Like it just has not taken off as it has in other countries. And I think part of my theory around it is just anime and animation in general is so huge in countries like Japan that it's like it was a really obvious kind of next step to make these huge kind of viral characters. But it's, I feel like it hasn't really taken off here. But what, what, what say you about this, Josh? So Pop is a YouTuber from the Netherlands. He does his channel in English. He's been around for a while, since April 2nd, 2008. He has 4,800 uploads, 14 million subscribers, 6.5 billion views. But his channel, I don't want to data shame the dude, but his channel back in January was getting 118 million views a month. And now in November, got 17 million or close to it. Here in December, he's doing a little better. He has around 17 million now with about a third of the month left. And I think he's been at it almost for 14 years now. Mm-hmm. And some of these YouTubers, they want an exit strategy. And yeah. I think this yeah. is ingenious, especially because yeah. the type of the content he's doing now is basically just reaction videos. Mm-hmm. So he's looking at different viral videos, lots of gaming videos, lots of other trending videos on YouTube and just reacting to them. And so replacing him with some type of VTuber seems relatively easy and a good way to get out of this YouTube grind if you have the clout. So Pop's new VTuber avatar is named Blue. And it's been going pretty well so far. He started them in June where it got 3 million views. And now in November, it has close to 8 million views. Blue is averaging on the main channel around 151,000 views per video. Up a little bit now, actually 166,000 views per video. And Pop has a good plan for how he wants to get out. He's basically going to continue to do his channel and Blue's channel until Blue's channel gets up to the point of viewership and presumably revenue that Pop has. And then he's just going to tap out and tap in for this virtual avatar. I love this method. I really hope it, works, it works for him. If it works, it's genius. Yeah, if it works, it's genius. And maybe this will just work for him because he's the first. I could totally see that happening. If there's this influx of YouTubers that try to become VTubers all of a sudden. I don't think that works as well. He has some good first mover advantage 
each year and I wish them all mm. the best. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. There was a big interview with the Patreon chief product officer in TechCrunch. Um, his name is Julian Gutman, basically just talking about how much Patreon is going to grow. And why I think this is really interesting is like some of the projects they're working on. Native video platform. Um, so exclusive video content that can live on the platform, not in an unlisted YouTube link, improved posting experience with more formatting options, different ways to organize content on Patreon, more data analytics, cleaner app design, simpler playback experiences for multimedia. And also they're going to revamp their billing system, which has just always been kind of a mess. And they're also going to um, expand tremendously. They have about 400 employees now. And by the end of next year, they're, they're planning on having 1,000 employees. And also they talked about crypto. They're, they're likely going to get in crypto. And I think if there's, if there's any platform that is, should be well positioned to get into crypto is obviously Patreon. Patreon's one of those companies, one of those platforms that I just personally, I'm always so aligned with them philosophically. I've just not ever been that impressed with them in terms of execution. Like I so believe in Jack. I so believe in the vision. I totally think he put his money where his mouth is. I think that you know, I, I think the, the sort of the heart and the philosophy of just like letting creators have as many options to monetize as possible is great. And they've done well, they've done decently, but they haven't been, it's not huge. It's not like the other platforms. So they have about 200,000 creators on Patreon, which is like, you know, relatively speaking, obviously not as many as a lot of the other platforms, but like there's, those people are also all people that are like, you know, really actively engaging their audience. And they're very, they're making a ton of content. And these, most of their, their patrons are paying for that content. So I really, I just always get very excited about the future of Patreon, but I also do it very cautiously because I just feel like I'm, I've yet to see them execute. But so in terms of execution, what would you want? to see more of. Maybe this is just the limit. How do they not have their own video player at this point? Right. But, but do you think that would like dramatically affect the people that sign up and use Patreon? Maybe they're at or near their limit for the people that feel comfortable right now soliciting their audience for dollars every month in exchange for content and access. I mean, I don't think that they think that way or they wouldn't be expanding by like, you know, 100% in the next year. I don't think that they think that at all. I mean, the creator economy is so huge right now. You build a good product, the creators will come. If you can show that you can make a ton of money here, the creators will come. I agree that there could be some more evangelizing and marketing and kind of a paradigm shift in the thoughts of creators where it's just part of what you do in getting your audience to pay monthly dollars to you or a monthly fee in some way, shape, or form in exchange for that content and access. I just don't know if like it's if they have their own native video player, if that really moves the needle. Well, I don't know if it's just native video player, but I just think they could be more innovative. Like I think crypto, like they don't have a dedicated team on crypto right now, but there's a lot of people interested in it. And I feel like if there's a place where like creators should be able to like buy and sell their own coin, it should be on Patreon. Like it just should be like all of those kind of innovations. And, you know, they were like, the the article was talking about, they don't want to just be another NFT platform. And I'm still, I'm very hot and cold with NFTs, but I think that this should be a place where this, this should be a breeding ground, a, a playground for NFTs. Like there should just be, I just think there should be, it should be bigger and better. I just do. I think, but philosophically, I just, I'm super aligned. Like I got like jazzed reading this. I was like, this is amazing. I hope they can pull it off. Um, it just feels like what took them so long. You know, I mean, I was talking to Patreon a few years ago about how they want to try to help creators get health insurance and things like that, because some, a lot of creators make a ton of money and it's like, they can't even, you know, they, they can't buy a house because they don't have, you know, W2 income versus W9. So they were going to help with all that. Like we're all those, like, I was like, yes, this is amazing. We're all those initiatives. Like, I think there's so much potential here. And I think they, you know, they have definitely been a part of legitimizing this greater economy. It always just feels like they are just slow a little bit, in, in my opinion. And um, I'm not even saying the growth needs to be crazy. Like, I, I don't think it should be like 2 billion people on the platform, but 200,000 just doesn't feel like that many. 
we'll see what happens. Yeah, I guess if some of these technological advancements can decrease the speed bumps for onboarding onto Patreon and make creators feel more comfortable with the product, I get how that could incrementally move the needle. But I think what really needs to happen here is just more huge success stories of how creators are using Patreon and the ease with which they are using it. I mean, maintaining a community is hard. If part of this roadmap is developing products or resources for creators in order to manage their kind of Patreon ecosystem a little bit better. I think that could tremendously help. Well, yeah, it's funny you're saying this Gutman guy says, we're really excited to look into building more first party community tools. And one of the things we're excited about is where content meets community. So I think that they're, they get that at this point, at least they're talking about it. And so I'm excited to see what kind of tools they've built around that. Josh, I want to talk about a little bit of like what we think about happened this past year and what we think is going to kind of happen next year. I won't go so far as saying predictions because that puts a lot, for me, it's a lot of pressure for predictions. But I just got to talk about what we're not talking about anymore, which you and I both know what it is. It is Clubhouse. Clubhouse launched in March 2020, went viral. Uh, when things kind of started slowing down, they they launched, they, they closed their Series C uh, funding, which reportedly valued the company at $4 billion. They were initially only iOS. Remember, you used to have an invite to get in. And you felt very cool. Um, then they finally launched on Android and they had 10 million new people join in the six weeks immediately after Android. Downloads have fallen dramatically. There's a stat from the UK that said uh, monthly active users, for example, in the, this is not downloads, but monthly active users in the UK have dropped from 550,000 in February and then in, in September was 160,000. This is from App Annie. There's a bunch of new features that came out on Clubhouse, the replay, which of course I predicted was going to happen. That's going to allow allows creators to record their rooms and share them on profiles or elsewhere. They're going to tell creators how many people have joined the rooms in total as opposed to how many people are just in the room at any point of time. Clubhouse has made it possible for users to send money to other people on the platform with a partnership with Stripe. Musicians seem to be benefiting from this a lot. Um, guitarists are earning around $200 for 20 minutes. But nobody's really talking about it anymore. And also, like I was looking, I was like, you know, all the competitors, you know, all the other platforms were launching their stuff. You know, uh, Facebook launched their live audio room. And the last like sort of announcement about that was back in June. What's the future of audio? I'm a big audio fan. I, I mean, what do you think? Lauren, I have an easy answer for this. I want you to look at your screen. Do you see that? That's Twitter. You see that thing in the middle? No, I just see Bitcoin at the bottom of your screen. No, but you start. see that on the bottom. You see those those icons on the bottom? Yes. Okay. You see that one in the middle? Yeah. That's the new Twitter Spaces icon yeah. that launched this week. Yeah. And so you click on it and then you see spaces just for you. People you follow are tuning in now. You see all those yeah. different spaces. You have the ability to start your own space with the click of a button. You can see the top host. You can see trending spaces. There's no search functionality here yet, which I'm kind of waiting for. But I think this is the Clubhouse killer. I don't know how Clubhouse really operates in a world where Twitter has spaces and Twitter is seemingly so useful for so many people in so many different industries as a way to generate thought leadership that then can turn into actual revenue for whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And Clubhouse had a moment in time where you could do that. Early people on Clubhouse are really benefiting from their early exposure to millions of people who joined Clubhouse. 
But outside from that, I don't think there's any leverage or room or way for anyone who's just starting out now to do anything on Clubhouse. And why would you do that when it's in this isolated ecosystem where you have Twitter, which has a much larger pool of people and you can access those larger pools of people with not just audio, but with text too, and then amplify whatever thought leadership you are getting on the platform or leveraging on the platform with occasional spaces. Well, I think that's a great argument, but then you could also come bring it back to Patreon. Like all of the platforms basically have subscription options, but so why would you go to Patreon? Well, because that's all that they do. And they are, they just are dedicated to that and making the most robust tools for that experience, which I would argue like their, their subscription is probably better than most, but then, um, so then why would you go to Clubhouse instead of, um, you know, doing it on spaces? Perhaps the same reason. I hear you. And we've talked about that argument before where it's like a singular focus of a company can beat the ancillary focuses of bigger companies. Yeah, I mean, it's like Facebook's not barely paying attention to live audio. I think I have thoughts about what they're going to do with, with podcasting, but yeah. I'd argue that these video companies or social media companies getting into subscriptions for as an added value for creators and way for creators to make revenue not from ad sales or branded deals is far different than Twitter. I mean, what does Twitter do? You can tweet 280 characters and now you can go live. There's not lots of other options. There's not lots of other like idiosyncrasies to the ecosystem and platform there where Mm -hmm. I think they have a real shot at being the de facto leader with all things live on-demand audio. Yeah, no, fascinating. What's the, the the Twitter thread that was earlier this year that dude that was like predicting the sort of beginning of the end of, of Clubhouse, which is basically exactly what has happened. Go Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. It was hilarious. Sean Purry, ladies and gentlemen, had a great Twitter thread. It was hysterical. So it seems it's just, it's sort of, it's just fascinating. It's just, it's all anybody could talk about. But so pivoting over to podcasting, podcasting on the other hand is, you know, it's absolutely blown up this year, even more than, than before. So back in 2006, only 22% of adult population in the United States were even aware of what a podcast was. And by 2021, that figure has risen to 78%. I don't know how many podcasts are out there, but there's about 120 million podcast listeners out there. My prediction for 2021, and this is really like, this is a big one, guys. Facebook is going to hire a head of podcasting. I think that is definitely going to happen. They did it at YouTube. I think there's no way that's not happening. I think this space is one where there's still so much potential. There's still so much listening happening on Apple devices and the majority of the world are on Android. That is definitely a prediction that I have for 2020. And Josh, what do you think about the podcasting? Tell me all the things. I like podcasting, but then I look at the top of the Apple charts and it's like all this true crime stuff, which I think I used to like. I mean, I don't think I know I used to like, but now I think is maybe ruining everybody with making everybody like super scared of everyone who's around the corner and turning everyone into these like law and order super sleuths on what is and is not happening with interpersonal relationships and the world at large in terms of like through the lens of these unsolved mysteries from the recent past or decades ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So your problem with podcasts is true crime, but um, I'm assuming you like podcasts because we do one. So I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> I just, I just, it's interesting to me. Like, I think if you thought five years ago, oh, what the future of podcasts is going to be, you would think like Joe Rogan, Chris Dixon, you think of these like thinkers in kind of like pop culture and the tech world, leveraging their thoughts in audio form to reach an incredibly expansive audience, which has happened. I don't think we would have assumed, oh, there's going to be out of the 10 top podcasts on Apple, eight of them are going to be true crime related. Are they? 
The top charts right now are Prime Junkie by Audio Chuck, Sweet Bobby by Tour This Media, which is also a true crime thing, Morbid a True Crime Podcast, <laughs> The Daily by The New York Times, American Radical by MSNBC. That's not true crime. That's just news. Smart List with Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes. Oh, yeah. I Lost Hills, Dead in the Water. True crime? I'm okay. assuming so. We're going to just... Assume. Last Known Position by Q Code, also true crime. I mean, there's a lot here. <laughs> Wait, say more. Wait, the Always Sunny podcast. It Always Sunny, man. They just impressive. Fascinating. 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 Dateline NBC, whole... Ben Shapiro, obviously. Harsh Reality, the story of Miriam River, also true crime by Wondery. My favorite murder with Karen Kingriff and Georgia Hardstack. <laughs> Gone South, the shrink next. I mean, come on. Where is Creator Upload? This is crazy. Um, and if you want to be uh, red-pilled on why true crime podcasts are ruining the world, you mm-hmm. should listen to this podcast, You're Wrong About, which is fantastic, where they go mm. through different types of pop culture phenomenon that have happened over the past decade, 20, 30 years maybe, and okay. talk about why our current concept of them is wrong. Fascinating podcast. They've covered the O.J. Simpson trial. All right, okay. One of their latest episodes is about the McDonald's hot coffee spill. Oh my gosh, my friend's dad was like an attorney on that. Terrible what happened to all these people. In any case, check it out. Okay, well, let's stop plugging other people's podcasts. So Josh, do you have any thoughts about the previous year or predictions for the next year? Yeah, so I think it's also fascinating the trajectory of TikTok and what it's become. Mm. I never would have guessed TikTok would become this like multifaceted, almost educational resource. I wouldn't call it educational, but learning, but like pop learning resource and also a way to get into a bunch of different types of niches really quickly because of the nature of its algorithm and the fact that it has very small videos. So the algorithm can't get better and better because it's suggesting to you a bunch of these different very short length time videos over and over again. So then it puts you into this rabbit hole of the type of content you're looking for, which they're actually trying to fix. But that being said, I I never would have thought it would have had the breadth of content it does now. And I both like it and kind of hate it because I think it's training us to have even shorter attention spans mm-hmm. and want this like dopamine hit faster and faster and faster and faster. Like I used to go to Twitter and feel kind of bad after a while. I actually like Twitter again now. I think that's because of the people I'm following. But I go to TikTok and I used to really like it. And now I'm just kind of feeling a little like not bad, but like not as good after I scroll through a bunch of things. So several years ago, I had a couple meetings at TikTok and they were talking about how they really wanted to get more into educational content. And I thought they were kind of insane. (laughs) Like I thought it was kind of nuts. And so I guess we were both wrong. Yeah. And I just and I just wonder moving forward, like what is the relationship between a creator and their audience? And so with YouTube, you have these creators that were talking to the camera that developed this real connection with their audience because of the nature of the content that they're producing. People are a little bit more open. People are doing different types of cooler stuff. You get to look into their world. And because of the length of those videos, I mean, you're tuning into someone for three to 10 minutes a couple times a week. You're Mm -hmm. going to develop a relationship with them, especially if they're looking straight into the camera a lot and talking to you. With Mm -hmm. TikTok, you have that, but it's in much smaller bites. And I just wonder if there's as deep of a connection with the audience and the creators that they have on TikTok versus the connection that creators have with their audience on YouTube. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. 
Mm-hmm. Also on the attention span front, this is a tweet from Nikita Beer, who sold his company TBH to Facebook for nine figures. Um, but my brain is incapable of watching movies anymore. I can't be away from my phone for more than 10 minutes. TikTok is going to rule the world, which I agree with. And I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, I don't think that that's true. I mean, like, I, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I, I think I spent too much time on the apps and I go through, yes, we all know, I go through phases where I delete everything and then I bring them back up and, and I put time limits and all the things. But I mean, I could still I could still watch a show. I mean, Succession's really big. You know what I mean? People are watching the shows. Yeah, so. I think just less and less so. I mean, okay, all right. Do you have any predictions for the next year that you want to share? Anything you think is going to happen? I thought 2021 was going to be a time when creators kind of wrestled more control away from the platforms. And now Mm -hmm. I think it's just the platform domination is inevitable. And it's going to take a huge paradigm shift in how we're producing and consuming content in Mm -hmm. order for creators to take back a lot of control of what they have. But on the flip side of that, I think creators are going to utilize the platforms and not be as tied to them as they have been in the past and extricate themselves financially from them through exploring lots of different ventures that are open up to them. I mean, I think it's Mm -hmm. fascinating now that if you look at creators, not as creators, but through the lens of small businesses, Mm -hmm. like how much resources and different types of value they're generating for themselves. Even if you just look at like the back catalogs of their YouTube channels, which people are paying a lot of money for to get access to own for just a few years right now. I think it's fascinating that trajectory. I never would have guessed it would come to this extent several years ago. I'm happy Mm -hmm. it's here. So I I think that that's kind of the dichotomy. I think platforms are just going to continue to get more and more control of this ecosystem, but creators are going to get savvier and savvier and expand their businesses at the same time. I agree. Diversification of the revenue. Platforms aren't going anywhere. They're necessary. They're just not the only option anymore, but they're always going to be, I think, a huge part of them. Okay, Josh, happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. You too, Lauren. We share a birthday. We share a birthday. It was just this week, December 20th. Can you believe it? I'm so much younger than him, but the same day, it's crazy. And that's what that's what Lauren keeps telling herself. Uh, I'll see you in 2022. And if not there, Lauren, I mean, probably there, hopefully there. And then I think there. Yes. See you there on Creator Upload. Today's show was produced by Lauren Schnipper and me, Joshua Cohen. It's edited by Jason King and original music is by London Bridge, who you can check out on Instagram at London Bridge Music. Make sure you subscribe to Creator Upload wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give us a rating, leave us a comment. Email us at info at creatorupload.com. If you like our show, please recommend it to a friend. If you love our show, recommend it to everybody. Hope 2021 was a fulfilling year for you and the best is yet to come in 2022. Stay safe out there. See you next year.